this morning, uh, I want to let you all know, whether you're a visitor or whether I've seen you many, many times before, I know something about you. I know something uh, deep about you, in fact. It's that you want to be happy. Every single person in this room wants to be happy. Um, fortunately, uh, God has used a means for us to discover how to do some things. I actually used this website twice this weekend to do a couple of home projects. WikiHow. Anyone ever used WikiHow before? Come on, am I the only one? There we go. I live in the Silicon Valley, people. This is a, it's a good website. Now, um, there are some things that it struggles with a little bit. I just decided to ask WikiHow um, how to be happy. And fortunately, it gave me 12 steps on how I can be happy. All right? Now, so that you don't have to go to your smartphone right now and look it up, let me just, let me just let you know that they actually illustrated it for you. So even if you can't read, here it is. This is how you be happy in 12 easy steps. All right? Right there. Um, now, kind of a fun game this afternoon is to take just the pictures and make up a little story about what each one is doing. <laughs> just see what you come up with. Um, here's the truth about happiness. Uh, every single person in this room wants to be happy, and every single person in this room is trusting something or trusting someone about happiness, right? We are all after happiness, and some people go after uh, WikiHow, which I don't recommend, um, but you have been told things about happiness. You're pursuing things in happiness. You're believing someone or something about happiness. Here's the reality. Some of you will go to work on Monday, and ultimately, you are going to work on Monday because you believe it will make you happy. Even if the short-term pain of Monday morning is upon you, you'll go to work on Monday morning because you think, you know what, long-term gain of a paycheck and eating is really, really nice. So I'm going to get up and go to work. So you even do things you don't like sometimes. Some of you are going to skip out on work on Monday for the exact same reason. You think it's going to make you happy. Some of you will run to people because you think it makes you happy. Some of you will run away from people. Why? Because you think it'll make you happy. We live the way that we live because we're in pursuit of happiness. Now let me stand up here as a Christian pastor today in a church and tell you this. God wants the same thing. God wants you happy. Do we believe it? Some in here trust God enough to believe his way of accomplishing happiness in our lives. Now, let me take you through a couple of places of scripture. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but the wisdom literature is found kind of right in the middle of your Bible. It's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those kinds of places. And one of the things that the wisdom literature does, it takes the word happy and it uses words like joy, glad, and the word delight. Here's an example from Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the wisdom literature. Let's fast forward to Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and in one of his famous sermons, called the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Blessed are the blank, for they're going to get blank. And you know what? He does it nine times. He's giving a prescription for happiness. Blessed are the blank, for they're going to get blank. 
Now, in the Old Testament, God gave ten words or ten rules. We call them the Ten Commandments. And in giving the Ten Commandments, He says this, follow these rules, follow these Ten Commandments that it may go well with you. God wants you happy. Now, we either don't believe that sometimes, or we forget that sometimes, or quite simply, we don't trust him. Now, I think it's pretty silly to go to WikiHow to discover how to be happy. What's interesting is as you go through there, some of them are kind of silly, like smile. You know, okay, I mean, I guess that may be a pathway to happiness, but I don't know. I don't know if that's really going to work, right? Some of them, as you move on, actually sound very biblical. Like, be compassionate. Be forgiving. Learn to be content kind of right where you are. I could find chapter and verse for all of those things. Do we trust him or do we just forget? Now, let's do this. Let's hear some of God's top ten lists. Okay? Ten commandments. What are some of the ten commandments? This is like Bible quiz time on a Sunday morning. This is a real question. I want real responses. Okay? You're in a group, so no one person is on the hook for all ten. They don't need to be in order. What are some of the ten commandments? Let's hear them. Go. Uh, that's a good one. Wow. Amen. <laughs> Woo! Ding. All right, next one. What else? Keep the Sabbath. Who said that? All right, who else? Not kill. What else? Don't cover your neighbor's wife. What else? No other God before you. Worship no graven images. Okay? Okay, remember the Sabbath? All right. What's that? No adultery, right? Yeah. Um, so, of, of the ones that we just mentioned, um, as, as you go through the Ten Commandments and as you think about them, uh, I was really happy to hear it actually twice, that we remember the Sabbath to set it apart, to keep it holy. That's what we're instructed in the Ten Commandments. Um, now, the Sabbath was given uh, for rest and for worship. And the Sabbath, and keeping the Sabbath holy, is not meant for filling up our schedule with all the unfinished work that we didn't get done during the week. It's not for busying ourselves with, uh, with more meetings. It's not for doing errands and chores. It's not for hanging out. It's, it's to be set aside and carved out as a time of rest and a time of dedicated worship. Today what we're doing is we're following up on this priority of worship. Hear this. God wants you happy, so he created you to worship. We talked about this last week a little bit. You are a ceaseless worshiper, whether you're a Christian or not. God wants you happy, so he made you to worship. And he commanded you to worship. Now here's my hunch this morning. First of all, if you aren't keeping the Sabbath, consider this fact. You are breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Now, this is called preaching to the choir. These are people who are sitting in church on a Sunday morning. Does that mean Sabbath is happening? Maybe. But my hunch is this. I think many Christians guard intently against things like adultery and stealing and lying and false worship, 
and taking the Lord's name in vain, and all these other things. But I wonder how carefully they guard keeping Sabbath. They guard their time of worship and setting it aside. Now, we're not legalists here, and I don't take church attendance. We don't have a picture taken right now where I sit there on Monday morning and give out church attendance gold stars. We, we, don't, like, we, we don't like that here. We don't believe that's, that's really even scriptural to, to go and do that. But I do want to elevate and, and remind you, just, just be a reminder to say that, that Sabbath-keeping, keeping the Sabbath and coming together for corporate worship weekly is something that God prescribed because he wants you happy. How about for those of us who are setting aside an entire day for worship, how is it going? Jesus gave this really well-known greater than uh, that even most non-Christians would know, and it's this. It is greater to give than to receive. Take that greater than and kind of lay it over worship for a moment. In coming to worship, is there an expectation of giving when you come to worship? And by giving, here are some of the givings I mean. Giving as in giving God praise. The expectation of giving as in bringing your offerings. The expectation of giving as in giving way to your brothers and sisters in Christ as we come to worship. Or is there an expectation of getting? And by getting, I mean getting something out of it. Maybe you've heard it come from your own lips. How was church today? That was so-so. I just didn't get anything out of it. Maybe coming to get a spiritual buzz or a spiritual kick in the pants or whatever it might be that you need that week. Maybe it's the expectation to come and get your own way. Jesus says, because he wants us happy, it's better that you give than that you receive. I struggle to believe that. I'll tell you that, just by my own lifestyle, my own internal wars that go on, I struggle to believe that that is true. But how beautiful it is to take that, lay it on worship, and say, what if we came every week, heart, soul, mind, and strength, with a giving mentality? God, I'm here to come to worship today, not to get, but to give. Here's the reality you'll get when you, when you come to worship that way. Is that true? I mean, experientially, don't you know that's true? We come with a giving heart, and God gives to us on the way out. All right, we're ending this series with these two weeks on worship because it's weighty. Last week, in a nutshell, uh, worship the true God truly. That was the gist of what last week was about. This is our great calling. If you're a Christian, full-time, and with all that you are, this is what you are to be doing. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God has given us the priorities. He's told us what is most important in worship. If you didn't hear it last week, I would invite you and challenge you. Go back and listen to it. It's on our podcast. It's on the website. And what it does is it sets up the foundation to say that the essence is the most important, not the form. Forms are what people often kind of degenerate into arguing about and bickering about, but the essence of worship is what's really most important. We see that all the way through Scripture. God's looking at the inside, not the outside. Your outside could be totally in check, totally in perfect form, and the inside could be a giant mess. This week, we're going to look at what we do 
corporately as we gather to worship. Maybe you've wondered this before. Why do we blank on Sundays? Why do we do this? Why do we do what we do on a Sunday morning? We're going to look at some of those things. All right, repeat after me. Worship isn't just Sunday mornings. Say it with me. Worship isn't just Sunday mornings. I want those words to come out of your mouth because it's so imperative that we get this. We have a long history of calling this worship as if going to work on Monday isn't. As if going home and tending to the kids or the chores or the bills or watching a ball game isn't somehow. And it kind of compartmentalizes us. Worship isn't just about Sunday morning. However, this is included in it. This is something that we do to set aside as Christians to come and say, I am going to come and gather with the family and worship God. A, because a regenerated heart is drawn to do that. B, because God commanded it. And C, because I trust him. This is for my happiness. He's done this for my great joy and my well-being. What we do in here on Sunday mornings at Neighborhood Bible Church is not done because it's hip or edgy or because we learned it at a conference, nor is it done because it's old and stodgy and really, really safe. Those weren't the parameters that we said, let's start a church and let's do it this way. We are guided by the New Testament. The building you're sitting in has been here for almost 50 years. This place has been a church for 50 years. A little less than seven years ago is when this church started. This current gathering of people began a church in 2006. And as we set out to do that, we said, what does the New Testament set for us? What kind of trajectory is allowable, and what are we supposed to be doing as a church? And we asked some really hard questions. The planting church from Cupertino um, uh, really tasked us with that, to say, don't just copy what we're doing. Figure out what God wants in this neighborhood. Now, I want to give you four things. They're in your bulletin if you want to take notes. And they're in order of importance. Some of what we do is is done because of direct mandate. We see these in Scripture, and it says, do this as a New Testament church. We say, done. Secondly, we see some things that are modeled in Scripture. Not specifically told, but we see them in Scripture, and so we do them because we, we see them modeled in Scripture. Third is that which has been handed down by tradition. Do we grab every tradition? No, but there's a history to it. And fourth, personality, just the people that started and and helped uh, keep this ministry going. All right, so let's look at these. I say they're in order of importance uh, because these are not all equally weighted. They're they're certainly weighted differently. And direct mandate, by far, is, is the weightiest. So number one is we sing. Maybe you wonder, why do we sing in church? I happen to be a musician, and I love music, and... I almost have to discipline myself not to listen to music at certain points in the day just so I can have some silence and reflect on some things. But I love music. I'm not one of those people who ask that question. As a kid, I'd be bored until we sang. And then we sing, and then I'd stop being bored, and then I would start getting bored again. Some of you are completely opposite of me. And you're just thinking, please end the song. Please let's not sing some more. Why do we sing? Again, not going to cover what we covered last week. But God is a singing God. God is a musical God. We're actually commanded to sing. I want to draw your attention uh, to Colossians 3.16. You can turn there or just jot it down. But Colossians 3.16 is a, is a guiding passage for how we sing. 
It matters to God how we sing. Here's what Colossians 3.16 says. Listen, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a really loaded passage with lots of instruction in there. Now, there's been lots written, lots talked about, lots debated about what exactly psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are. I've had people come and say, see, we're supposed to sing hymns. But I said, yeah, but when this was written, just so you know, we're not talking about the 1500s, 1800s hymns. Those hadn't been written yet. What are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs mean? Hymn means to praise. That's what the word means. Well, I'm not here to unpack that. And frankly, no one really knows for sure. But I'll tell you what they indicate. They indicate variety. They indicate that there's a variety of ways to sing to God. I went to San Jose Christian uh, School, and, and that was here in San Jose before it moved out to kind of Sacramento area. And I was roommates with a guy from India. He was here studying to be a church planter. And my other roommate was from South Korea. And I got done leading worship one time at a chapel, and I came back. And my, my roommate, Jay, said, Dave, you know, thank you for leading us in worship. And it was kind of like a condescending, like, thanks for trying kind of a thing is, is a sense I got, you know. Uh, and I love Jay. And he said, um, he said, that was fine and all, but if you want really moving music, uh, what you really need is this. To which he went over and he pulled out his accordion. Now, I had a guy in my youth band at the time that said, play an accordion, go to jail bumper sticker on his guitar case. So we came from different worlds here. And I said, really? Um, play, play that thing for me. Do you know how to play it? Yeah, I know how to play it. I'll never forget this. Jay sat in our little dorm room, and he starts to play the accordion. And as he started to play, he started to play and sing the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And he just sang this little chorus to the accompaniment of an accordion. And it was really beautiful, and it was really moving. And I've never since used an accordion in a worship team, ever. So, so it didn't sway me to say that that's the right way to do music, but what swayed me was what poured out of his heart. What poured out of his heart was adoration for his, for his Savior, Jesus Christ. And it came in the form of an accordion. Now, my roommate, John, he didn't say a whole lot. He was from South Korea. He sat there. He looked at both of us like we were both completely nuts. He didn't believe either one. He didn't think the accordion was the way to go, and he didn't think that, that uh, guitar and, and the things we were doing was the way to go. Uh, here's, here's, what's, here's what's powerful, is God didn't see fit to record sheet music for all of time. He, he saw fit to record lyrics of songs. The middle of your Bible is, is a book called Psalms. That's a whole hymn book. It's a whole song book right in the middle of Scripture. It's actually telling to note that he didn't record exactly how those songs go. We don't know that. God didn't see fit to record that. He did give us the lyrics, and he gave us the freedom and the command to sing. Think about the underground church in China right now. They are singing different songs than the Hinton's New Fellowship. We had a couple leave here. In fact, on the back table is their new contact info. Uh, if you want to write them, uh, hang out with them uh, via Skype or whatever else, please keep in contact with them. But they're now in Nairobi, Kenya. They're singing different songs than us. Those people are singing different songs than the underground church in China. And brand new Christians this morning in Iran are singing totally different music than all, than all of us. 
There's, there's a different soundtrack and a freedom to that around the world. We are not all singing the same songs, but we're singing to the same God. Let me just tell you here at NBC, every song that we sing, the lyrics are poured over each week and thought about very strictly. We think really carefully about what we sing. We always allow the music to serve the lyrics and not vice versa. There are some really great tunes that we love to play and, and all that, but the lyrics don't hold up, so we don't, so we don't sing them. We are teaching with song. We're wanting it to be richly filled with scripture. We're wanting there to be wisdom in there. I really believe that we sing what we believe. Let me give you some different categories. Hymns have a lot of words in them. Hymns are just wordy kinds of songs. And they even have a lot of big words. They even have a lot of big biblical words that need definition sometimes. But what's great about hymns is they teach great theology. Praise songs. These are songs that express our drawing near to God and God drawing near to us. We believe praise songs are great to sing. There's also many new songs that we introduce. Many of the songs that we introduce are lifted straight from Scripture. I've heard a lot of baloney that says, oh, a lot of the new stuff, it's all me-focused, it's all this and that, and I just go, out. Well, I'm not sure what new songs you're looking at, but many new songs are lifted straight out of Scripture. We often try to be very explicit as we introduce a song and say, by the way, if you're getting mixed up on the words, just flip open to Psalm 68. They're right there in your Bible. We want to show you, we want to make that connection to show you that we are singing what we believe. We're singing wisdom. We're teaching one another with songs. Here's an action point under this specific point for you. If you don't know what you are singing about, ask. It's been thought through. If you're struggling with something that you're singing, ask about it. Hey, is this allowed in Scripture? Is this even biblical? Those are good things to do, to be engaged in. All right, number two. We spend time in the Bible, the Word. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this. This is Paul writing to a younger pastor. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Neighborhood Bible Church. We put the word Bible right in our name to be very, very clear to our neighbors what this church is about. The Bible is our authority, our guidance system, our encouragement, and our referee when we have disagreements. And it's not the Bible per se, it's the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible wrote a book. It's called the Bible. It's a bestseller. But its authority and its weight is not in its popularity it's because it's true. And so that's what we lend ourselves uh, each week to. We don't gather weekly to hear man's word. We gather weekly to hear God's word. Now here's something interesting. From the dawn of time, people have been putting people just like me either up on pedestals, public speakers, pastors, up on pedestals, or down in ditches. That's just kind of the nature of upfront leadership. Let me read for you a couple of passages um, to kind of uh, make sure our, our thinking and our and our, uh, our 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 train of thought is 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 in line with Scripture. Here's something Jesus said in Matthew 23: "And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, capital F, and He is in heaven." Then He says this: "Nor are you to be called Teacher, for you have one capital T Teacher, the Christ." John, 
one of the disciples of Jesus, picks up further on this and presses into it. This is 1 John 2.27. 1 John 2.27. He says this, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. The anointing he's talking about is God's grace given to all Christians. The anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, stay with me. I almost didn't take this detour, but it's really, really important. Jesus just said, we're not to elevate anyone to the level of father, because we have one father, he's in heaven. Nor teacher, because we're being taught by Jesus Christ directly through his Holy Spirit. John picks it up and says, says this line, you have no need that anyone should teach you. At first read, you might think that you're wasting your time sitting here in church then. You say, wow, I think that's a free pass. I shouldn't even be here. Maybe I'm even disobeying God by sitting under teaching. That's not what John's saying. What was John doing by writing this letter to these people? He was teaching them, right? So he's not negating his own argument. Just by saying that you have no need of anyone to teach you, he's teaching that point. Here's what John and Jesus are in agreement about and are trying to explain. Jesus instituted pastors to guard and instruct and tend and feed the sheep, Christians. What John is doing right now is exactly what Jesus told him to do. He commissioned John to go pastor people and to tend and feed to uh, his sheep. Both John and Jesus are absolutely slaying the idea that I, helpless sheep, helpless Christian, am, am just helpless without a teacher. What they're both saying is this. No, you are taught directly from God himself. The spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in every believer. You know what that means? As you open God's word and you read God's word, the Holy Spirit is instructing you. <clears throat> I'm bringing all of this up to this end for this action point. You want an action point on this one? Here it is. Learn directly from God. Use teachers like me to augment all the learning that you're already doing. Worship God by learning from Him. You learn from Him by receiving instruction and acting on it. So that means obeying Him. Doing what He says. One means that God provides is the role of pastor-teacher. Use us for that role. There's some great Christian authors out there that I am mentored by. They don't have the time, nor do I have the time, to fly out to wherever they live and be mentored by them. They write and I receive some instruction. But don't follow a teacher, a pastor, a speaker, a giant Christian personality, um, either indiscriminately, nor so much that it negates your own learning from God. That is rampant in evangelical Christianity. And frankly, that looks no different than the world that just elevates kind of its superstars, does it not? And just puts them up there. So learn directly from God. My prayer is this. That each Sunday uh, is the end of a week for you sitting at the Master's feet and learning from Him. 
And it's like a jump start to the next week where you're going to sit at the master's feet and learn from him and do what he says. That's the life of the disciple. So all we're doing here is just kind of a culmination of one week and the start to a new week. All right, here's number three, is that we draw near in intimacy. One of the ways that we do that is through prayer. Last week, uh, we emphasized, two weeks ago, we emphasized silence in a service. Just a time of being together in God's presence with other Christians. There's a powerful component to that. Communion is something that's been given to churches. You may wonder, why do Christians celebrate communion? Because Jesus commanded us to. Typically at, at NBC, we celebrate that at least once a month. Third Sunday of the month, we tend to carve out time and really dwell on and celebrate the symbol and metaphor of, of communion. It's about intimacy. Hebrews 10.22 says this, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We get to draw near to God with full assurance. And what's beautiful as we draw near to God, God draws near to us. James 4, 8 through 10, or James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What James goes on to instruct is this, as you draw near to a holy God, you may find yourself like the prophets of old who said, wow, I'm standing on holy ground. Woe is me! And you become acutely aware of your sin. What do you do when you do that? James instructs us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. 1 John 1.9 says this, Confess your sin. And God is faithful and just. He will forgive you your sin. And he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe there should be more mourning and weeping at church. A sense that as we sing about the holy God, we're just overcome and we weep over our sin. When I see someone crying in church, if you start bawling in church, I will probably come and put my arm around you. I hope someone else does if I don't. And what I don't rush into is they're there. It's okay. Stop crying. I don't say that. I really have a sense, God, maybe this is you, the Holy Spirit, working in this person. And the most appropriate response right now is that they're just mourning over their sin. Now, as a Christian, I want to guide you to the truth. I don't want to leave you there mourning over your sin, feeling condemned. I want to guide you into the fact that there's no condemnation now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And joy begins to wash over us. This happens in intimacy as, as we draw near. Again, this better not just be your only time for this Sunday morning with a bunch of other people. That's a hard time to do it if that's your only time. But as a community of people, we're going to come and do that together. Let's look at what's modeled in Scripture. Just write down Acts 2.42, probably a familiar passage, but I'm going to read it for you. These are, these are just some of the things that we see. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received 
their food with glad and generous hearts. That's one thing we see modeled in Scripture. Just write down 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the whole books, the whole letters. In 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see some other things modeled in Scripture. Bad things. Things that Paul was having to address. Flagrant fouls, if you will. Communion turning into, you know, a shoving in, let me get mine first kind of an episode. Crazy chaos that Paul was having to come in and say, stop it! When you gather for worship, don't do this. Rather do this. Stop doing that. Do it this way. So again, what we see modeled in Scripture, we don't know the details of some of these things. What we know is that there were some problems when Christians got together for public worship and Paul had to address them. We also see other elements of worship talked about in there. Communions talked about. Giving of offerings is, is, uh, is mentioned in these letters uh, as well. Uh, number three is what's been handed down from church history. How do we find ourselves here? The reality is we find ourselves here because someone before us handed us the gospel. And we're now running with the gospel ball, so to speak, and we are to give that away to the next generation. We're to proclaim the works of God and, and the path to, sal- to salvation to the next generation. I mentioned this last week that lots of fighting comes from elevating our personal taste to say this is divine command. That's why it's so important to go back to the scriptures and let it be our referee. We have to do it this way. Really? Who says? God does. No, that's just a personal preference. Divine command leaves total room for that. So let's not elevate that to what's mandated in Scripture. Let's let that be down here. Let's let it be part of the conversation, but not elevated to divine command. The other reason we fight a lot is because worship is both objective and subjective. You get engineers and musicians in the same room, there could be sparks in any situation. There's just differences in us as people. So you put us together and try to figure out a worship service, sparks are going to fly sometimes. We said last week, worship is part science and part art. Think about anchors. Anchors have this ability to do two things. Obviously, in a boat, you would throw an anchor over to kind of, to kind of settle yourself in a shifting sea. When it comes to worship, when it comes to church tradition, um, an anchor is a little bit like traditions. An anchor could be something that holds us back and we're forever dragging as we inch forward with great effort. We like to think at NBC of an anchor being this way. We like to grab from the traditions of the past and use it this way. God is moving us forward. Time is moving forward. God God is moving the church through time. We like to think of it this way. Throw the anchor forward. Let it settle down. Let it keep us settled as we pull forward. Here's what I'm talking about specifically. One of the things God has blessed this church with is something that every healthy family needs. It's not a room full of, I'm 43 years old, it's not a room full of 43-year-olds. Praise God. We have grandparents and we have grandkids. We have aunts and uncles and nephews and siblings and parents. We have kind of this whole gamut that meets together in fellowship here. That's been an answer to prayer from day one. My prayer was this, God, would you bring the right older people to come help shepherd this congregation? We're going to need it. Please don't let me be the oldest person at this church. 
God, would you bring up-and-coming young Christians that have new ideas, that are excited, that will launch us forward and, and ask questions we're not even thinking about? God's been so faithful to this body because we have all of that. You know what's true? Of all those people, and guests included, they're all considered as we worship on a Sunday morning. We consider the whole family with that. One of the things that you'll notice almost every single week, and this week's no different, is that we include a hymn almost every week. And when I say hymn, I'm most often talking about a song written hundreds of years ago. Sometimes it's modernized with a chorus or whatnot, but typically we grab on to hymns. Part of what we do that I already mentioned is there's just some great songs there that are, are good to pull from. We also introduce new songs frequently. We introduce songs, new songs, we introduce new songs frequently, but we do so carefully. We don't just grab our, we need a new song this week. It, it, has, to, it has to meet some of these tests that we, that we put out. We introduce songs that are written from both inside of our community and those who are outside the community. Songs have a way of acting like creeds. They help us remember what we believe. I've heard many parents say, man, would you guys put out a CD so, so we can listen to it during the week? What's great is our kids sit there and sing the songs that we sing on, on Sunday morning, and they're singing back truth about God, truth about who they are, truth about their help in times of, of trouble. That's really powerful. You know what else we don't have here at NBC? We don't have Youth Sunday. We don't even believe in Youth Sunday. Youth Sunday at a lot of churches meant this. One Sunday out of the 52 weeks, youth, you have a role in church. You have a part in the community. We reject that. Now, we're not looking back or down on people who do it that way. But what we say is this. We say, young people, you're welcome in the community and expected to play a role in the community as soon as you're fit to do so. On stage this morning, we had one, two, three of our high schoolers. This is not Youth Sunday. This is just church. That's part of why we have our children in here. Is it a little bit antsy and a little bit louder at the start of Sunday morning when the kids are here? Say yes. Yes. I'm constantly, you know, finding scurrying bodies around me. Am I thrilled that they're here watching their parents and watching their spiritual aunts and uncles and watching their spiritual grandparents worship God? Absolutely. First Sunday of the month, if you come on a first Sunday of the month, you're going to see them in service the whole time. That's next week. We do that quite intentionally to bring them into the community. All right, fourth uh, and lastly that we're going to talk about this morning is just personality. God doesn't use manuals or robots to do his work. He uses people. And in using people, there are some things that get kind of roped into this whole big mess. Idiosyncrasies, uh, faults, passions, past experience, and just personality. All that kind of culminates in personality. So there's no question that part of why, why is this Christian church different than a, different, than a church down the street, both of whom worship the same God, believe the same things about Jesus, um, subscribe to, to the Bible as their final authority? Why are they so different? Just look around you. We're different, people. And God uses personalities. You can read four Gospels and read four different shades of the truth. Is that right? Yeah. Because God wrote those Gospels through people and used personality. Last week was fantastic. Rob came into the copy room, and I was in there. I said, hey, how's it going, meaning sound check? And he goes, ah, not so good. I'm like, and he just kind of had that look. We've been together long enough. I'm like, what? what's going on? And he goes, I just, I don't know. I'm not really crazy about a few of the songs. And from my office, I said, 
awesome. That's so good. And he knew exactly what I meant. What we tell the band and what every new band person knows is this. You are going to lead worship with songs that don't hit you very hard, that don't click with you, that don't minister to you. If we always do your favorite songs, that's the one kid in the family who we always get his favorite meal night in and night out. We're more equitable than that. We're considering the family. So once in a great while, you might see a little bit of a sour face and then like a forced smile and then a sour face. You know what that is? That's the wrestling match going on. God, help me worship, although I can't stand this song. God, would you, would you let me know that someone's being touched by this song because I'm about to scream. I'm a musician and I'm very emotional. Right? And so they're up there and they're, they're going back and forth. It's a great thing when someone in the band doesn't like the song periodically. Let's look at this quote talking about preferences by a guy named Joseph Stoll. I just went through this book with Michael Dolan recently. He said this, Christ alone gives us reason to surrender our self-interest, our rights, our wants, and our peculiarities to larger, more compelling interests. Here's your action item. Use your favorites on a Sunday morning to enter quickly into worship, quickly and easily. Go gung-ho with it. And use your non-favorites, that's a politically correct way of saying songs you can't stand, as a means to practice Philippians 2.4. Let each one of you not look out to his own interests only, but also to the interests of others. What is allowed on a Sunday morning? What is acceptable? Variety. Here's just a list I made. By the way, I prepared this. Uh, was some time I had in Mexico at a three-hour graduation in a language I mostly didn't understand. I thought I'd use the time by poring over Scripture and seeing what are some different ways we're allowed to worship. Here they are. Tears, trembling, reading, songs, dancing, silence, listening, bowing or kneeling. We're commanded to worship with people different from us, multicultural, loud instruments, preaching, shouts, Prayer, bringing gifts in order and not chaos, in triumph, in mourning, with repentance, with our possessions and money, and with obedience. There's a lot more, but that's just a little list I made while I was in some time. Now, what's crazy is I made that list while I was sitting in a very quiet, non-clapping, proper Baptist graduation service. Later on that night, or maybe the next night, I was at a Calvary Chapel in Rosarito, Mexico, bilingual. Let me just tell you, two very different worship experiences, and neither one of them exactly like NBC. But the ability to come together and see the variety. Did not God send us out into all the world to make disciples of the whole world? That's going to include some variety. All right, let me do this. Um, I am going to save a last part of what I had for next week. Um, but what I want to move to is how you can grow in worship. The way that you can grow in worship uh, is this. Play your instrument. Romans 12.1 says your body is for worship. Play your instrument always for him and play it well. You are 
an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. So that's number one. Number two is to sing His song. Creation sings His story. Angels are singing non-stop. We get to join in. We get to use our voice and join in. A converted life will make heartfelt melodies to the Savior. But what if I don't sing good? My dad was allowed to sing in our church choir growing up one time a year. It was during Father's Day. They said, any guy who wants to sing, you, you sing. My dad made the most of it. He took it seriously. He went to practice for six weeks at a time. He joined in. Now, he was flooded out by about, I don't know, 400 other men. But my dad belted it out. I have a hunch, as out of tune as my dad's voice typically was, I have a hunch it was beautiful music to our Lord and Savior. Here's what I would say with sing your song. Sing loud and often. Let your heart be in tune, even if your voice isn't. Belt it out. Now, some of you are very, very unsatisfied by this. You're like, what on earth does that mean? Play your instrument? Sing your song? Let your voice be heard? All right, that was for kind of the artsy, creative types. All right? Now, we're going to shift gears. Oops, I didn't put up my second one. We're going to shift gears. We're going to have a nice, neat column. We're going to have numbers involved. All right? So here's for the more objective. Give me something concrete. I need something I can use. Here we go. Pray. Number one, pray. Leaders and congregations must be much in prayer over Sunday mornings. Worship is spiritual. So what's going to grow you in worship? Spiritual activity of prayer. Every Sunday morning, there are people praying before services. Join them. If you can't make it formally, let your time driving in be preparing for worship. Be much in prayer. Number two is to learn. There is teaching and learning that must go on. I said this last week. This is a worship book. If you're a person of this book, you're learning what's acceptable, what's not acceptable before God. You're learning about who you're worshiping. One of the things that Ben and Rob do uh, is is weekly um, try to teach about worship even as we're in the midst of worship. I've seen many a 22-year-old, good-looking, charismatic, immensely talented Christian lead in a worship service, and I'm fairly convinced they had no idea what was really happening in that building. They were talented. They could hold a crowd. Boy, could they sing and play. It's shocking to me sometimes how quickly we will put up a fairly immature, and 22 has nothing to, be with, has nothing to do with whether you're mature or immature by age alone, but how quickly we'll put up an immature person in this most important role of worship leader. You want someone mature and loving the Lord in that role. Uh, ben and the team, why don't you guys come on up? Here's the third one is to restore. What I mean by restore is this. You want to know what acceptable worship is? Don't talk to me about drums. Don't talk to me about lighting. Don't talk to me about style or era of music. Let me give you some things. First Timothy 2.8. Lift up holy hands without quarreling. Matthew 5.24, Jesus said, First be reconciled to your brother, then come to God's altar and offer your gift. According to 1 John 4.20, to say that I love God and yet hate my brother, I'm a liar. Husbands, listen to what 1 Peter 3.7 has for us. Make sure that you're living considerately with your wife 
and honoring her so that your prayers will not be hindered. And finally, the whole church is responsible to watch that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. It's Hebrews 12, 15. You want to grow in worship. You want to find out what's acceptable. Be restored. Have a pure and undivided heart toward God and toward your brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship that we just got to engage in by hearing your word read and talked about. Now, God, as we move on, I pray that, God, our our spirit, our heart and mind would continue in the flow of worship. Amen.